Well, over the next few weeks, we are going to be studying with what is, without a doubt, one of the most controversial, highly debated, and misunderstood texts in all of the New Testament. No, it's not about the resurrection. Some tough stuff, right? Especially in light of a culture that is at war against God's design, at war against God's expressed order, and in a culture that is doing everything possible to try to flatten and erase any distinctions between male and female. We're at a stage in human history where people can no longer answer what you think is a pretty basic question. What is a woman? What is a man? You hear inane comments like, well, men can also get pregnant and have periods. We like to use some foolish terms like birthing persons. You mean a mother, right? What is that all about, if not a war against God's design and order? Our culture is terribly twisted when it comes to matters of gender and when it comes to matters of sexuality. But not only is our culture confused, we're finding more and more that many Christians are confused about some of these very same things. In fact, we're embroiled in some theological skirmishes in the church that are not new. They've been around for a long time, but we deal with them today as churches in the past have dealt with this. Questions surrounding the nature of the role of men and women in the church. Are they the same? Or do they do the same thing? Can women be in ministry? Can women be pastors or elders? Who is to lead the church and questions of that sort? And over the next few weeks, we're going to be diving into those issues. Because these uh, issues of the role of men and women in the church and how they're to conduct themselves in the church are as relevant today as they were when they were written to the first century church in these pastoral epistles. They're controversial and they're difficult themes. They shouldn't be, not to God's people, but sadly, they are also to many of God's people. But as always, because we teach through books of the Bible, we cannot skip these sections, right? We're facing them, we're addressing them, we're confronting them. Uh, As I was trying to study for this series months ago and begin to look at what other churches were teaching, it was not surprising that most of the teaching series in 1 Timothy actually skipped this beautiful and relevant passage for the church of Jesus Christ. A lot of pastors don't want to touch this. They see it as, a, as like a hot potato. They want to pass off to someone else. Well, I'm grabbing that hot potato, and we're going to go with it, okay? We don't skip those things, right? Um, even though the world, even though this culture seeks to exert maximum pressure on the church, to align with the spirit of the age, right? We resist that. Because our allegiance is not to our culture or the prevailing winds of culture. Our allegiance is to Christ Jesus. He is the head of his church. Not me, not you, not anyone else. It's Jesus Christ. So we don't take our marching orders from the world. We don't take our cues from the culture. We take them from Christ. So we're going to let God's word Speak to us, and we're going to let God's word inform our practice as a people and as a church. Now, if I were to distill today's message into a single phrase, it would be, God's messengers are to adorn God's message. God's messengers, which we all are, 
are to adorn God's message. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 15, but our concentration today is going to be in verses 8 through 10, and then the next couple of weeks, we'll get to the deeper stuff there. Well, would you stand as we read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Hear the words of the living God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. You may take your seat. If you recall with me, the purpose of Paul's writing to Timothy, in fact, it's the thesis statement of 1 Timothy here. Now, Timothy, remember, is Paul's apostolic delegate to the church at Ephesus. He was uh, urged and exhorted by Paul to remain at Ephesus with a particular charge in place. He was to deal with those teaching a different doctrine, the false teachers. And he was also then to instruct God's people, and we see that in chapter 3, verse 15, how God's people ought to behave themselves in God's household. How they're to conduct themselves in the public gathering. When God's people come together, there's an expectation placed upon the people of God. And just like you have rules in your own household, just like there are rules when you go to other people's households, there are rules that govern the conduct of God's people in God's household. Because that's what this is. This is a local church. This is the microcosm expression of the universal church of Jesus Christ. And it's God's household. And again, Paul refers to it as the church of the living God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. The foundation of the truth. We are charged with the responsibility of holding fast to that truth and heralding that truth to others. So we would do well to keep that uh, exhortation in mind. The purpose of Paul's writing to Timothy as we look at these particular instructions over these next few weeks. Again, they are challenging. And depending on your church background, you may have been taught on these things a certain way. They have informed your Christian practice. They have fleshed themselves out in the way you comport yourself in the church and outside of the church. So as we go through this, you might be bristling. You also might be casting off some false things and you might be getting set free. So I think we'll see both extremes possibly on that end here today. And I know there will be a certain segment who will go, yeah, that's exactly how I see it and believe it as well. Now, as we began chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago, it started there with Paul's insistent that what is a first priority in public worship is to be attended to, and that is prayer. First of all, prayers should be going up, all kinds of prayers, 
supplications, requests, thanksgivings, supplications and intercessions going up from the people of God, all different kinds of prayers. For whom? For everyone. For every kind of person and especially for those who are in high positions or in authority over us, the ruling authorities. Why? Because it's God's desire that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator. That is why you and I need to herald this message to everyone and be praying for everyone so they come to know the one true God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Only one mediator. And now there's a little bit of shift, but this cannot be read in isolation from where we have started here. Because now he's moving to the posture of men and women in public worship. Next week, we'll look at the role of women in public worship, but now he's addressing the posture of men and women in public worship. And he starts there in verse 8, addressing the men. Verse 8, I desire that men, that in every place, who should be praying? The men. The men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That doesn't mean women don't pray, but specifically here, he is addressing the men. Paul assumes... That it's the men who should be leading in prayer. Men pray. That's what we do. That's what we ought to be doing in public worship. That's what should be taking place when God's people come together and gather. That cannot be neglected. He says, I desire that in every place. Well, what's every place? Exactly what it means, every place. Not just in the church or every place where the church is gathered, but in the homes. Every place that the gospel is heralded, men should what? Pray. Men should pray. That's what should take place. Now, for the Jews, this was understood, right? In Jewish culture, men led the prayers in their homes. In the Jewish synagogue, men led the prayers. The women did not lead those prayers. And we find this practice continuing even here in the first century church where the men, when the church gathered, the men would be leading the prayer. Men are commanded not just to lead in the church, they're commanded to lead where else? In the home. This is the example they are to set forth, but also when they gather as a church, they're to set the tone in the gathering by praying, by leading in prayer. Doing what? He says here, lifting holy hands. What does that mean? Does that mean when we pray, men need to lift their hands in prayer? Is that how we're supposed to pray? Well, we know as we read through the Old Testament, there are a variety of postures that are referred to or mentioned uh, when it comes to people praying in Scripture. Not only do we see them standing in prayer, we see them sitting in prayer, we see them spreading out on the floor in prayer and before God, we see them uh, bowing down with their faces prostrate to the ground and certainly with hands lifted up or spread out and palms facing upward. We see these expressions of posture in Scripture. But here's what's important in what Paul's writing here. The key is not the hands... Or the posture of the hands, the key are holy hands. It's holiness that's in view here. And Paul is moving now from this external posture of prayer to the internal disposition that one should possess in their heart. It's the posture of the heart that is more important than whether or not our hands are lifted up or we're standing or we're sitting or we're kneeling or we're bowing down in prayer. 
The point is that our inward spiritual life needs to match our outward demonstration of piety. It's the outward gesture of prayer that becomes futile if the heart is bound up with ill will towards someone else. If the heart is bound up in unforgiveness and bitterness and has not released the offense that another has had towards them, then when they come and lift their hands in prayer, that prayer, in essence, is meaningless. We are to pray, he says here, men, without anger or quarreling. When you think about that, what does anger and quarreling breed if not divisiveness, discord, strife, something that breaks the unity of the church, breaks the unity in a home, right? If you're getting into arguments and quarrels with your brothers in the Lord, if there's a lot of quarreling in the home, if you're seething in anger all the time, well, that will contradict any posture that is taken in public worship that might on the outward make you look on the outside look like you are righteous and holy and pious, but the reality is that that is hypocrisy. And it's, in, and it's meaningless. We know there are probably men in the church here that were being divisive. We know there was error. We know those who were teaching error in different doctrine. There were men and women both engaged in this practice. And, and I believe Paul is addressing some of that here. Because these men would be divisive. And then they would show up to lead in prayer meetings. When full well they knew they were not right with other people. It's hypocritical. For a man to come into the assembly of God's people gathered, lift up his hands in prayer when he has been fighting with his wife and kids and with others and has been argumentative. Jesus warns us against these displays of hypocrisy in in showing off in front of others when our heart is not in the right place. Matthew 6.1 He tells his disciples, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Outwardly, we can look righteous and pious and holy to others because they see our outward expressions or manifestations of such. But inside, our hearts could be defiled and messed up and wrong. And certainly, we could be at odds with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's a connection in Scripture between our hearts and the work of our hands. Look at this scathing rebuke in Isaiah chapter 1. Where the Lord says through His prophets in verses 15 and 16. When you spread out your hands. And He's talking to His people. I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. It's rather useless to stretch your hands out in prayer if those very hands are defiled with sin. Paul's concern here is not the body posture. It's not whether hands are lifted up or you're on the ground or you're standing up in prayer. It's the posture of the heart. Men, I don't know if you know this or not, but how you treat your spouse will determine the effectiveness of your prayers. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter, the apostle of the Lord, gives similar instructions here as Paul. 
A lot of people say, well, Paul's the only one who's, who's expressing these things about men and women, especially the role of women in the church and how they're to conduct themselves. But here we have Peter, and we're going to look at this passage and another one here in just a few minutes, where Paul is addressing similar things. In verse 7, he writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Sin, anger, quarreling are a hindrance to unified prayer in the church. Sin, and this kind of things he's addressing here, are a hindrances to our prayers Don't presume God will answer your prayer if you cannot live with your spouse in an understanding way and show her honor as God has uniquely made her and designed her to be. If you don't treat your spouse as a co-heir of the grace of life, as one who will inherit the very same things you will that Christ has provided for us, if you are domineering in the home, if you're a bully or a jerk... And you always want to pick a fight and argue with your spouse. God won't hear your prayer. It's not me saying that. It's the word of the Lord. God won't hear your prayer, brothers. I want God to hear your prayers. And you should want God to hear your prayers. That means these very same things he's addressing here that apply to the church, holiness, love, peace. These are the things that should prevail, being able to lift holy hands, a heart that is right before God, need to be present in the home as well so that God will hear your prayers and they'll be presented to him unhindered. If anger and quarreling are the hallmarks of your leadership in the home, then men, I call you to repentance before God. Confess your sins. Repent to your spouse and to your kids so that God could hear your prayers, so that they can go up and God will respond. It's the very thing the Lord commands us as he says, here's how to pray. When his disciples asked him, teach us to pray, we get the Lord's prayer. And what is a component of that? Forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we also have forgiven our debtors or those who trespass against us. There is that expectation that God's people who are recipients of the lavish grace of God will extend that very same grace to their brothers and sisters in Christ who've received forgiveness beyond what they deserve and have been forgiven of far more than they'll ever have to give someone else will be able to extend that to their spouse, to others in the church who maybe have sinned against them. It is nearly impossible to offer up genuine prayers if you are withholding forgiveness from others. If you're harboring some grudge or some resentment towards someone else, Or there's a root of bitterness in your heart towards a brother or a sister. It's going to be hard to pray. It's going to be hard to lift up sincere and genuine prayers. Jesus instructs us that reconciliation precedes our worship. Mark chapter 11 verse 25. Whenever you stand praying. Again, he's addressing men here. They're the ones who would be standing in the synagogue 
to pray and lead in prayer. Whenever you stand praying, what does he say? Forgive. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. A right heart attitude in prayer is essential. It is crucial for prayer and for God-honoring worship in the public gathering of the church. Holiness, love, peace, no anger, no quarreling are indispensable qualities for unified, God-honoring, and effective prayer. Now, what is to be then our posture in prayer? We get that it's the heart issue, but are we supposed to be lifting up holy hands? Like, is that the method? Well, it's not the method. We've just said the method's not the main issue, is it? It's the heart, right? For some, lifting up hands is awkward. Again, depending on your denominational flavor and distinctive, your church upbringing, what you've learned, what you've seen modeled, it just might be, you know, you just stand there like a frozen statue, in prayer. It's the heart though, right? Or you might feel comfortable in lifting your hands to pray or kneeling. I grew up in the church where when it was prayer time, we were kneeling at our seats. We'd be on the ground and yes, our knees would hurt. Sometimes those prayers went rather long and our knees would start getting, you know, these indentations and marks and we develop calluses on our knees over time. But some of you have a different, I love to pray sitting at my chair at home, or more importantly here when I lead prayer, I like to pace, I like to stand, I like to move around. I think my brain engages when I'm moving, and it stops engagement when I stand still. It might be different from you. Again, we said scripture mentions a whole lot of different postures. Some people got on their face before God. And there are times where, where you do that. There's many times in my life that's, that's what I've done. I've gotten on the ground and, you know, I'm just crying myself, a little snot prayer in the presence of God, you know. There are other times where just, it's, it's not like that. Maybe I'm praying in my mind and, and I'm just sitting down. Some of you pray when you're driving, you know, or, or doing chores at home, right? Um, in the Old Testament, the normal posture was they would stand, you know, as the Levites led in prayer or, or prayer was led and and. The arms would go up and with the palms upward. And it was a sign, basically a sign, an expression of submission and dependence uh, and faith in God. But again, the issue isn't whether you sit, stand, kneel, or are on your face for your prayers. Your prayers need to be accompanied by the corresponding heart posture of holiness, love, and peace. That's what matters. That the heart is right as you come before the Lord. Imagine what would happen in a church where the men are lifting holy hands in prayer because their hearts are right with God. Their hearts are right with others. Their heart is right with their spouse and and with their kids. And they're in right relationship with everyone. And there is unity in the church. The prayer of those men will be effective and powerful. It's the kind of prayer we want to see here. That when we do call a prayer meeting, it's not just the women who show up. We know that's the way it is in most churches. Prayer meeting, who's there? Women. Where are the men? Taking a nap. Sitting on the couch with their pants unzipped. With their hand in a bag of chips. That's not the way it ought to be. I thank God for the men who show up Sunday mornings here for prayer. 
Thank God that we do have men in this church who love to pray and lead in prayer as well. I'd love to see all of our men present in prayer. In a couple of weeks on Wednesday night, we'll be gathering again together for prayer at Safe Harbor Church with three other churches for prayer. Wednesday night, the 29th. I want to see our men there. I want to see our men leading in prayer there as well. Let's move on here because now we're moving from Paul's address to the men to now he is addressing the women. And specifically, he's addressing their adornment in verses 9 and 10. Let me read 9 and 10 again. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this passage, sadly, has been misused dramatically in many churches to exert a legalistic demand upon and place a legalistic demand on women. Women, you can't show your ankles. You can't show your neck. You can't show, you can't show your head. You can't show your shoulders. You know, can't wear makeup. You can't cut your hair. You have to have long hair. You can't pierce anything but your ears. And if you do pierce your ears, you better wear small earrings. Nothing flashy, nothing big, nothing that calls attention to yourself. Better never get a tattoo. That's the devil's ink. And that'll send you straight to hell. You've been part of those churches. I've been part of those churches. There would be a time in my life where I'd confess I'd thought those very same things. I'd read a passage like this, and I would see here that Paul is, is, is making some clear clear demands upon women to adorn themselves, dress themselves in a way that calls nothing uh, to, to the attention of their femininity. Now, the feminists love to rail against this passage. Why? Because it's an apologetic for their cause. See, here's what religion does. Religion is trying to deny your femininity, to suppress your feminine qualities, right? Now, of course, modern-day feminists are far from feminine. I wouldn't classify any of them as feminine, so, you know. But this passage has been used also to shame many women in the church. Why? Laying on them the blame of men's lusts. Because they're showing a little too much shoulder, a little too much leg, a little too much cleavage. And if you do that, then the men are going to lust after you because they can't control themselves. Shame on you women. Some of you laugh. Some of you have been there. Some of you might have received that special counsel from the pastor's wife or one of the lady deacons or something like that. Or maybe from the pastor himself. I served in a church where the pastor... Uh, had no shame in telling women that they look like streetwalkers. What is Paul getting at here? Is Paul prohibiting women from having nice hairstyles or wearing nice designer name brand clothing? Is he advocating for some frumpish, dowdyish, prudish look among the women of the church? Should they all look like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music? God forbid, unless that's your thing, okay? It's okay. Look what Paul says here, though, because this is important. Verse 9, likewise. What does that tell you immediately? This is connected to what he just finished telling the men. 
This is not a separate standalone statement. He's not like just moving from random instruction to random instruction. All of chapter 2 is one cohesive argument, one cohesive flow of thought, which is why we're taking our time to go through with it. He writes, likewise. What does that mean? In like manner or similar fashion. He's turning his attention to female members, and it's linked to what he just told the men. Now, women did not lead the prayers. Again, that doesn't mean women don't pray in public worship. We're going to talk about that next week. But they didn't lead the prayers, right? But like he's telling the men that with uplifted, holy hands, the inward being reflected on the outward, women are also to have their outward adornment match the inward qualities of piety that are befitting gospel people. He's not saying that women shouldn't adorn themselves. He's saying the opposite. Women should adorn themselves. He's not saying they shouldn't. He's saying they should. He recognizes the beautiful qualities of a woman. That women are beautiful. And not only that they're beautiful, they should seek to increase and exhibit that beauty. You will find nothing in these verses to instruct a woman to neglect herself. Nothing to uh, neglect their appearance or hide their beauty. Or as a mandate to be dowdy and prudish and frumpish. It's not should they adorn themselves. But how? How they should adorn themselves. That is at the heart of what Paul is getting here. So I'm sorry that it's been used in a legalistic way in churches. And you've been part of those things. Some pastors are idiots. Some pastors don't understand their Bibles. Some pastors want to exhibit a a control and manipulation that is demonic and wicked and evil. This this, This passage here is not about those things. It's a very liberating passage. It's a beautiful passage. I want you to see some of the things here. Beauty is a good thing. It's a God thing. God gave beauty to women, not to men. He gave the brawn to men, but he gave the beauty to women. Men are ugly. (laughs) Women are beautiful by God's design. And women beautify everything. Right, men? You should say amen to that. Women beautify everything. If you're married, you better say amen. You're in trouble later, right? There is nothing wrong with a woman being concerned for her adornment. It's encouraged here. We also encourage it. You'll not find any shame here to cause you to have to hide your God-given beauty and femininity. In fact, for our younger ladies here, we need to teach a healthy view of what God's Word says here. We have the culture telling them one big fat lie about their femininity. Well, in the church, we better be telling them the truth and teaching the truth and instructing the truth. Feminism tries to eradicate femininity, even though it's arguing for the opposite. What is our culture doing where you can't even tell the girls from the boys and the boys from the girls? Can't tell the difference, can't tell the distinction. They dress the same, they act the same, they talk the same, they got the same haircuts, they wear the same clothing. It's it's a flattening of God's order and God's design with the intent of creating this one mass androgynous confusion of humanity like they're all the same. Well, while we're equal in the sight of God, we're all created in the image of God. God did not make us the same. 
praise God for that. There are distinctions. There are differences. And there's no diminishment in this passage about the worth of a woman, the dignity of a woman, the value of a woman. This has nothing to do with that. God's word has already established the equality of women to men. Go back to Genesis. It's right there from the beginning. So Paul's not arguing that here. So if you've been taught that here, that oh, this is meant to suppress women and for men to exert a control over women, that's not what this passage is about at all here. So there's no shame. This is not about hiding your God-given beauty and femininity. Again, legalism tells a woman they need to hide their femininity for another reason. Because it's a distraction and a catalyst for men's lustful desires. Okay? That's not to say that the way a woman dresses cannot provoke a man to lust. Like we know that's true, right? We're not dumb. We know that's true. But that's not the biblical exhortation in view here. Okay? Now Paul mentions three things that reflect how a woman should adorn herself. How a woman should dress for public worship. They are to dress, he says, in what would be considered respectable attire, modest, and attire that reflects the self-control a godly woman should exhibit. Now, why is he talking about this? Now, we know that while this letter here is written and we get a chance to read it, we know this letter was written to a particular people at a particular time. Is that right? Here, it's written to Timothy... Paul's apostolic delegate, but this would be read in the church at Ephesus. So there's no question Paul is tying this to specific problems, maybe that need to be addressed in the church, but we know there are timeless principles here for all of us at play here. So here there were probably women in the church who were somehow through their outward appearance were being distracting in several different ways that maybe we'll look at here momentarily. But he tells them they're to dress, right, in respectable attire. What does that mean? What does it mean to be respectable? Well, I would say that what he's advocating for here is to dress in what is appropriate to and fits the occasion. You dress a certain way if you're going a certain place. You dress a certain way if you're going to a particular event. You don't go to a wedding in yoga pants and an oversized t-shirt, do you? Like, that's not appropriate. That's not fitting the occasion, is it? You should not go to a funeral service in shorts and flip-flops. It's not respectable attire. It's not appropriate attire. It's a, it's, it's a different occasion. It's dressing in a manner appropriate for the audience, environment, and activity you are participating in. Those things should be thought through. Who's there? Where am I going? What's the place like? What's the event? What's the environment? What's the activity I am participating in? That should dictate that. Those examples I gave would not be respectful or respectable. It's not respectful to the people there. Would not be respectful to the bride and groom and the other guests in attendance, right? One should take into consideration what is respectable attire for the public gathering of God's people. Where God's people are going to come together to do what? Worship. 
through prayer, through singing, through the ministry of the word, through participation in the Lord's Supper. He's saying the women should be adorning themselves in respectable attire that fits the occasion that they are partaking in, the worship of God's people. Now, There is a cross-application here for men. Just as women can draw application from the exhortation to the men, well, men, we have a responsibility too. We should dress as fits the occasion as well. Yes? Yeah, we should. If your work calls for you to dress in formal attire, you don't go in jeans and a t-shirt, do you? And a cap. If it calls for a suit, you got to wear a suit. We know there are certain occasions. I'm going for a job interview. I'm not going to look like a slob, right? I'm going to wash my face. I'm going to get my my hair cut, trim my beard. Some of you might use deodorant for the first time, you know? Party yourself up a little bit, right? Depending on the occasion, right, we adorn ourselves. We we dress a certain way. We fix our appearance a certain way. This is what Paul is talking about here. The gathering of God's people is not the same as the gathering or hanging out with our friends. Men, the gathering of the church is not the same as you gathering with your buddies at the pub. Or ladies, a play date with your friends at the park. This is the holy gathering of the people of God with the purpose of worshiping God. And thought should be given, attention should be given To the way one adorns themselves, why? That it be done in a manner that is fitting the occasion, the audience, and the purpose for which we are coming together. And this may bother some of you, but I do want you to process this. The casualness with which most people dress for public worship is many times a reflection of the casualness with which they approach their spiritual devotion to the Lord. We don't have a dress code here. I will never impose a dress code here. But it doesn't mean that God's people don't think through what we're doing here. Because this isn't the same as you going to a concert, a play, watching a movie at the theater. We're worshiping the king of glory, the king of the universe together. So thought needs to be given to that. That's not to shame anyone in this room at all. Because I don't care what you dress in. It's not about you going to buy out the the snazziest looking outfit because we're going to address that here in a moment. You can be wearing the snazziest outfit out there and this rebuke that Paul gives here is for you. All right? So pay attention. All right? Respectable attire. Secondly, women are to dress with modesty. Well, now that's a dirty word nowadays, isn't it? (laughs) That's a dirty word. Who are you to tell me how to dress, you know? Um, it's a dirty word in the church. I mean, I've, I've read article upon article, man, just, just blasting any thought or concept of modesty. But what is modesty? See, modesty is more about an inward disposition than an outward expression. Modesty is about an inward humility that does not make oneself the center of attention. It is Dressing in a way that does exactly what I think is Paul's heart here. Dressing in a way that is not distracting. It's not distracting from what is central. And what is central? Christ, right? Christ is central to our gathering. The word is central to our gathering here. 
In the case of public worship, because Christ is the central feature and the word is the central feature, a godly woman dresses modestly to not distract from what is central and from what is the point and to ultimately be able to point people towards Christ and not to themselves. A modestly dressed woman is demure and discreet in their dress and does not dress in any apparel that is deliberately suggestive Deliberately seductive. Unless she's going out with her spouse, then all bets are off there. But it's different in the gathering of the church. If you have any doubt about what I'm talking about, there are many mature, seasoned, godly women in this room who can help you discern what that is. Again, I'm not going to tell you. There's no skirt lengths here. There's no talk about what one has to wear or not wear here. There's a measure of wisdom and prudence that guides the people of God here. He also says they're to dress with self-control, which I thought, that's kind of odd. Like, how do you dress with self-control? Right? Well, self-control is about demonstrating a level of what? Restraint. I'm restraining myself to, to some degree here. And he's talking here about having restraint in how you dress. And ultimately, I think the point here is knowing, you know, when enough is enough. You know, one can go a little too far in adorning themselves is the point here for the purpose of what we're doing here. Restraint might mean uh, buying a tire that is not excessively costly, especially if your purpose is to show off. If your purpose is to sport the latest designer brand purse and shoes and all of these things with the purpose of people seeing, wow, you must have money because look what you can afford to buy and you're flaunting that. Well, then this is, I think, exactly what Paul is trying to address here. Now, he's not saying just shop at Goodwill and not at Nordstrom's. Right? That's not the point. All right. By all means, shop at Nordstrom's if you can. You won't find me there, but. <laughs> right. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And I think what he's saying here is that self-control is a great look on godly women. And that's what you should adorn yourself with. Showing that you know how to restrain yourself. You're not going to be calling attention to yourself. Your dress is respectful, respectable, it's modest, it's demure, it's discreet. And everything you're doing with your attire and apparel and adornment is to point people to Christ and to the glory of Christ and not yourself. Again, the the whole heart of this is the inward heart issues, isn't it, right? What is the reason why you may be adorning yourself in a way that is immodest, without propriety? So I'm going to ask you some diagnostic questions, things for you to reflect upon yourself. Do I like to dress so that others notice me? Now, let's be clear. We like to dress nice, and we like people to notice that we dress nice. I don't think... At the core, there's anything wrong with that. But it has to do with that heart issue of, of an insecurity I might have or, or, or deriving a sense of worth or identity in my appearance, and I crave that attention from others. So with that, another diagnostic question. Do I like being the center of attention, and do I use my outward appearance to capture that attention? Does my outward adornment help point people to Christ, or is it distracting? And do I exhibit self-control in my dress? Take some time, ladies, and think about those things. I praise God. I think we have some 
This is not a major issue here in our church, but it, it can be. And so Paul is addressing this. Now, now he's going to tell us what's proper. And, and he's using an argument. Don't do this, do this instead, right? Not this, but this right here is what I'm after here. So he's saying, adorn yourself, enhance your natural beauty without calling attention to yourself and without making a show of yourself. So beautifying yourself is God-honoring, but adornment for the sake of vanity is sinful. Right? Know the difference. Ultimately, it is a heart issue. Now, he says women's dress should not be with this. And he mentions braided hair. What? I can't braid my hair? I can't braid my beard, so you can't braid your hair. Okay, no. Braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. What's he talking about here? I can't go get my hair done up. You know, I can't get something, a nice do to show off. Is that what he's saying here? That's not what he's saying here, okay? Now, we know from culture to culture, hairstyles, jewelry, clothing have different meanings. And what might be culturally appropriate in one place may not be in another. I'm not trying to have a discussion on culturally appropriate dress and whether we should appropriate. That's not the point of any of this. But you know, we wear things here that in another country they would never wear. And vice versa, they wear things we won't wear here, okay? So we need to understand there are cultural issues that drive a lot of these particular things. And at this time of the writing here in the first century in Ephesus, there were some cultural trends and things happening that may have been imported by the ladies uh, in the church. Um, There were cultural trends in which rich women uh, of the Roman court would begin to sport hair that was braided and interlaced with gold fittings and gemstones and pearl droplets, and they'd go out in the sun and their hair would be like a disco ball, okay? You know, but only the rich people could do this. And obviously they had apparel they wore that the common person would not be able to afford. But they loved to strut themselves around like a peacock and, you know, in, in their full regalia and show off, look at me. They, they wanted to be the envy of every woman and they wanted every man to look at them. Okay? Some of that uh, dress of the rich courtesan women of the Roman Empire at that time actually was influenced by the attire of the cult prostitutes. So you can imagine some of that clothing was probably seductive and sensual. Okay? So some of this is what Paul is addressing uh, uh, here. Modern example of this might be that we would want to warn right, uh, young ladies or women not to adopt maybe styles and trends and fashion trends that might be influenced by, you know, promiscuous, you know, music artists or celebrities and things that they sport that trends that catch on, right? And everyone wants to go buy this stuff and look this certain way. Not all of that would be wrong, but again, the argument here is that we need wisdom and we need to have discernment before we adopt any of that uh, and take that in and begin to do that. Again, he's not saying here, don't buy designer name brands, okay? Or don't look fashion forward or dress fashion forward, right? That's kind of cool. Things that are trendy. Doesn't mean you have to skip the leather purse and and get the vegan leather purse. (laughs) Vegan leather is demonic. (laughs) Whoever came up with that is going to be in hell, okay? Because it's not the same thing. It's just not. If you can buy the leather, buy the leather, okay? The heart of this 
is it's a wisdom issue. It's a heart issue. It's a stewardship issue. Because he's also saying, but if you, even if you have the means to buy the most expensive things, should you? Is that being a good steward of the resources God has given you? Right? Are you generous with the things God gives you? Or are you just spending it all on yourself? Because you want to look apart. And you want people to notice you and you're calling attention to yourself. I read a passage like this and I, I think of my early Christian days. And all I think about is the women on TBN. Remember that? Jan Crouch and Tammy Faye Baker and hair that was like three feet tall. 85 layers of makeup and mascara. Fake eyelashes that look like fingers coming out of their foreheads. Right, but this is what was presented as, here's what the godly women wear. And I'm like, that, that is terrifying. It's the stuff of nightmares, you know. And, and I read this passage, and I'm thinking, Paul is, is talking the exact opposite of what they're doing. And what they're modeling and presenting themselves uh, uh, as. That is not how God's people, God, the, God's women are to uh, adorn themselves. Think about our study in Proverbs, the contrast between lady wisdom and woman folly. Woman, the woman, lady, uh, woman folly was what? Loud and brash, dressed sensually, calling attention to herself. That's not lady wisdom. So this is basically what Paul is exhorting God's women here in God's household to do, to dress like lady wisdom, not woman folly. Now, Paul moves from the outward to the inward, just like he did with the men. So not with braided hair, not with gold, not with pearls, not with costly attire, but with this. What is proper for women who what? Profess godliness and with good works. The whole flow of this exhortation is that Christians are to conduct themselves in a manner that does not detract from the gospel mission, but enhances it. The message of Christ is to be adorned by the messengers of Christ. God's messengers must adorn God's message. That's the point here. The message about God's desire that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that they come to know the one God and the one mediator, which is Christ, must be adorned with the corresponding conduct of God's heralds. So women, here's how to dress. Dress yourself with what is befitting, what is proper for one who professes the gospel. Professes godliness. Dress with godliness and good works. What does that mean? It's not the lifestyle of godly women. It's the lifestyle rather, but not the style. We focus on the style. We make this passage about the style. It's not about that at all. It's about the heart. It's the lifestyle. It's not as much about what you wear on your body as what you wear on your heart. Is what you wear proper for a woman who professes godliness? This is another diagnostic question for you. If I confess that I am of Christ, if I confess that I believe his gospel and I'm living out its implications, is that demonstrated in how I adorn myself on the outside? Is my outfit so loud and distracting that others cannot hear my profession of faith? That's the point. So maybe on Sunday mornings or as you're dressed throughout the week, the question isn't, what do I wear? I hear my wife every time, what do I wear? 
after 18 changes of clothing. She always looks beautiful, and I tell everything she puts on is beautiful to me. But me, the question isn't what do I wear, it's what do I wear that will draw the most attention to the glory of God? Maybe that's the question we should be asking. What do I wear that points people to Jesus? What do I wear that, that demonstrates my profession of faith and godliness? Paul also mentions good works. You're to wear good works. Now, good works are the product of the life of godliness. They're, it's the fruit. And good works are the proper adornment for a woman of God in public worship. Ladies, your Christ-likeness is a beautiful adornment to the gospel message and a beautiful adornment to our order of public worship. Now, as we go through the pastoral epistles, especially when we get to Titus, you'll see that good works is a major emphasis of Paul's writing to Timothy and to Titus. It's a big deal for men and women alike. But here Paul is reminding women in the, in the church that beauty is not just physical, it's also moral. That beauty doesn't just have to do with the body, beauty also has to do with the character. Both are in view here. John Stott writes in his commentary in 1 Timothy that the church should be a veritable beauty parlor because it encourages women members to adorn themselves with good deeds. And that would be my encouragement here as well. Women, adorn yourself with Christ-likeness and good deeds. Good deeds enhances a woman's natural beauty. And where some of the women might think, well, nature made me plain. I want you to know that grace makes you beautiful. And that's exactly what the admonishment here is for you. Men, you have a role in applauding and recognizing women that exhibit Christ-likeness and godly character. That is what should be held in high esteem in the church. I know there's some churches out there, right, where people love to show off, you know, that they were looking, you know, sharp and all dressed up in nice expensive clothes and you got pastors parading themselves in $1,000 sneakers and all this other stuff. But the way we comport ourselves in the house of God, the household of God, is so important because we're to adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and we're not to detract from that message. We're not to distract from that message. We're to adorn it. And here he's saying, ladies, here's how you adorn the gospel. Men, here's how you adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter also mentions this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, 3 and 4, and we'll close with this verse. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. If this is what is precious to God, It must be precious to us also.